4 p.m., stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. This day is another special day. Uh, we got someone that flew all the way in from the big state of Arizona. And we have here, uh, uh, really, uh, I guess I'm going to have to call her my niece <laughs> in some ways. Because uh, yeah. she's a, my, my dear friend, Donna Hamilton, the mother, the wonderful mother of my children's niece. I mean, yes. Yeah. And uh, and your wonderful mother, who I do well, who I know very well, Miss Georgiana. Call her? I want you to hold that hold that. Georgiana Jones. Georgiana Jones. Yeah. That's spell? it. That's it. Georgiana That's Jones. It. All right. Sometimes I don't say it. We all we all affectionately call her Georgie. So yes. But I have uh, Miss Sandra Lanehart. Welcome to Countdown. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. And because uh, you're doing some big things in the state of Arizona. And you've been moving around for quite some time, but we have a lot of history together. I've been knowing you for over 27 years now. So, yeah. So I, I want to make sure that we talk about some things that you've been doing. you got a wonderful son, my little partner, Isaac, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you love the husband, Paul. That's your only baby. Huh? That's right. He ain't no baby. No more. You gotta let it go <laughs> He'll now. always be my baby. That ain't no baby. He's a big boy now. <laughs> we got we to admit to that now. He, uh, don't he want to be on his own now? Uh, he's, he would have left if he could have, yes. Right. But he's in grad school, so, so, so he's... So tell me you're holding him hostage. I'm not holding him hostage. He can go. I told him, you know what? I want my house back just like you want to be in your own. So, so he, he is in grad school? Yeah, he's in grad school. He'll finish in uh, May. Okay, now what is he doing in grad school? He's doing a master's in music composition. So he's, he's stuck with his music there, guys. Well, you know, his goal is to write music for video games. Right. So. And I did hear some of the things that he recorded. I didn't know he could sing. I yes. mean, caught yeah. me by surprise. Yeah, yeah, me I, too. He wasn't doing all that singing, but yeah. I mean, because I mean, a musician, because he's always kind of on the quiet side to himself. Yes, he is. He's a very quiet person. But uh, he. Uh, what was nice when he was at Northeastern University uh, and he was doing the game technology and music composition combined major that he created, he wrote his own major. So He wrote his own major? Yeah, yeah, That's he wrote amazing. his own major. He was in a program where he could, he was in a situation where he could do that. And so after he wrote it, they adopted it and they made it an actual degree so other people could get that same degree. I hope degree. he got paid for that. No, he didn't get paid because that's what you do. But uh, I did recently set him up with a friend of mine who is a dean at Denver University or University of Denver, uh, where they're trying to create a new program. So she knew about Isaac, and so they had a chance to consult. So maybe that'll turn into something. We'll see. Well, he like his mom. He's making a name for himself. So Isaac is... Isaac is way more brilliant than either of us put together. Oh, uh, we, uh, we, uh, we saw that when he was young. So uh, Isaac's done quite a few things already. He got a, his last, I think it was last year in school, he got a grant um, to create a project where he wanted to look at the relationship between music and emotion. Hmm. So uh, what he did was he would write the music and then he got these artists, visual artists, to create three 
art, three pieces of art connected to different types of music that he played. And then he had, he had an exhibition. And actually, when we went to the University of Arizona, one of my colleagues there, but she ended up leaving, uh, was like, maybe we can get that exhibition here. It was really good. It was you know, very well done. Uh, great attendance for the people who came to the exhibit. Uh, Paul and I flew there. Uh, and helped him get everything set up, but it was wonderful. Uh, but he has, Isaac has lots of uh, intellect, but I guess it's sort of like, you know, people who, just because you're good at something doesn't mean that that's the thing you want to do. Right. So Isaac is good at a lot of things. One of them, he's a really good writer, but he hates writing. So I'm just like, you know, you could do a PhD in whatever. And he's like, yeah, but I don't like writing. I don't want to do that. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like, well, you got, and also, I, I have to regress here because I did not uh, introduce you properly. It's Dr. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dr. Sanja Landhart. Yes. So, the, from the University of which one? Arizona? So right now I'm at the University of Arizona. What do you mean right now? <laughs> well, as you said, I have moved to different places. So right I, okay. yeah, so I'm originally from Texas. I did my undergraduate work at the University of Texas at Austin. And then to do my graduate work, I went to the University of Michigan and in Ann Arbor. So I got my master's in um, English language and linguistics with uh, specialization in medieval studies, and then my PhD in English language and linguistics. And then I got my first job at the University of Georgia, where we were there for 11 years. During that time, I also had a postdoc at Stanford. So I got a chance to work there for a year, and that's when I got out two books. I worked on my two books uh, that came out, and then do you, I... Do you remember the name of those two books? So the first book was uh, an edited collection based on a conference I had done at the University of Georgia, and that was called Sociocultural and Historical Context of African American English. Mm-hmm. And then the second book was my first sole-authored book, which is Sister Speak, oh, Black Women... Me. Kinfolk talk about language and literacy that has my maternal grandmother on the the cover and I always say that that book has traveled around the world in places that she could never have dreamed of but she got to see because of that book and I'm always amazed at when people you know some people who meet me and they're like I know that book sister speak I use that and I'm like and they're like in nursing or sociology or whatever. And I'm like, why are you using it? But okay, great. I, I, I attempted to read the book about three, four times. It was over my head. I didn't understand the book. I thought I the first time. part, the first part of the narratives, and I think, you know, most people can relate to that more right. so than the second part of the book necessarily. I think it's a story. So I'm really big on, on narrative and story and creating those spaces. Um, and then, so after we left there, we went to, I was at the University of Texas at San Antonio for 11 years. And uh, was able to do quite a bit there because I was a professor, a full professor and uh, endowed chair there. And so in academia, an endowed chair is a position that you have your position, professor, assistant, associate position, but you also have money that somebody has contributed to create that you live off, I guess, the interest or whatever. So it's in addition to your it's in addition to your stated position and salary. So this is just additional money that you have to do whatever you want, special projects, pay yourself more money, hire students, whatever. And so a lot of the time, in addition to hiring a student, I would also do programming like conferences. And I was the only one really uh, who was doing that kind of work, uh, conferences that dealt with African-American language. 
So while I was there, I did a, probably two or three conferences, um, not just on African-American language, but also the, some in my field. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. Uh, and what was nice about being there was I had the money to pay people to oh, do yeah. that work. That made it uh, easy. That made it easier. The logistics of it, you know, when you're in the midst of it, you're a host, you're the organizer, you're the, you know, you're everything. You're the point person. But you, you're the, but you were young, full of energy, full of life, yeah. wanted to change the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Still want to do some of that, but you're right. That energy, the energy level is a lot different. Uh, but from there, I got out a couple of more books. So uh, African-American women's language, uh, discourse, identity and education, something to that effect of the title which was kind of the first of its kind, I guess. And then the other book that I did there, which was sort of my magnus opus, right? Because this was a thousand page book with like 50 chapters and I was working with about 70 different people. Thousand pages. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's called the Oxford Handbook of African American Language. And so it's, it's a huge book. It was a project I worked on for, I don't know, at least five years. And it was huge. It was huge. First of its kind. Now, now, what, now, now give me that title again. The Oxford Handbook of African American Language. Now, now, now you, got to, you got to explain that to folks. <laughs> Not so, explain, you got to explain that. It's the African <laughs> language. That's what you mean. So that's my primary area. I look at language use in African American communities, language and identity, language and education. Uh, I'm, all, I'm rooting for everybody black, so I'm all about black folk. Uh, and so um, linguistics is a scientific study of language. Uh, and so I do sociolinguistics, which is looking at language and social context. And the social context I'm most interested in is within African American communities. Um, and then maybe a little larger than that, I just sort of, I'm interested in identity overall. Uh, the connection between language and identity, why people use the language that they do, especially for African American language, even when it's so stigmatized, right? Everybody from the day you grow up, the day you're born is telling you that this is a bad language, you don't know how to talk, right? Like, so why are you using it? But people, this language persists, right? So what is this connection between people being told that, people even, mimicking that and saying, oh yeah, this is bad language while they're using it, right? Um, so I'm interested in those kinds of, of conversations. And I'm also really interested in how women use, black women use language in this way because they've been just so understudied for one thing, but also because I just have a great respect for black women and all the things that they do within black communities. So that handbook looks at um, the history and development and variation and culture uh, of language in African-American communities. So it looks at, you know, uh, where did it start? What did it look like? What type of language was it uh, when it initiated? Because it's not the same language now, right? This has been, you know, 400 years uh, in the making uh, for what it looks like here. The relationship between it and Caribbean Creoles um, because both of these spaces were part of the transit, transatlantic slave trade. Both are greatly impacted by that. Who were they coming into contact with, right? A lot of times they were coming into contact with people who were not native English speakers uh, or spoke particular varieties that weren't considered the prestigious varieties or what have you. So all of that mix 
right? Is, and so the cradle of, of African-American language is in the southeastern United States where the big plantations were. Um, and there were opportunities to develop in these sorts of ways. So that'd, so that'd be Louisiana, uh, Mississippi? Well, no, the southeastern would be, we're talking about the Virginias, Carolinas, right. uh, moving along, right, Georgia. Yeah, coming through uh, that place. So yes, we do get to, but the variety that we get in Louisiana is we have Louisiana French Creole here, right? So the language mixture here was a little bit different because we're talking about the Southeast US, we're talking about people, yes, there were some people who were coming from other countries or other parts of the UK like Ireland uh, or Wales, right? And using English in different sorts of ways. But when we get into Louisiana, we're talking about the French. And so that mixture with the French, and you know, you have uh, Louisiana and Texas, you have French, you have Spanish, you have indigenous, you have all of these groups that are coming together. Hence, Louisiana French Creole in this part uh, of the country, as opposed to that influence that you had um, on sort of that southeastern part of the U.S., which were other varieties, other European varieties, right? Um, even though people who were involved in the, the uh, slave trade were, in addition to Great Britain and its imperialism, colonialism, the Dutch were very active, the Spanish, um, Portuguese, right? Those are huge influences on the Caribbean and South America that you have a lot of that influence, but it all sort of gets mixed together in different ways. And so how black people adjusted to that differed depending upon their context. But you know, I, I had a chance, I traveled back and forth to Africa for, for some in the 90s. And what, what I learned, you know, we, it's always been a, a joke, say what you call a person that speaks one language? American. <laughs> because when I was in Africa, everybody spoke five languages yeah. or more. Yeah. I had, that was phenomenal, five languages yeah. and more including English, French, Spanish, yeah. German, Russia. Yeah. I had never experienced A that. lot of that had to do with who was colonizing. Right. So, you know, like I said, and those were the people who were, uh, Germans not as much, but people who were much more active in um, slavery, in colonizing, in, you know, all of those sorts of things were, uh, and so, you know, settler colonialism, those sorts of things. So they would learn, you know, like, so, and, you know, they would learn those languages of the settlers or, or the, the colonial settlers or whoever was pro professing colonialism. But also because they, the, before the, the colonists came, those were already multilingual societies, right? Because right. of different tribes, different ethnic groups coming into contact with one another. And so the multiple languages that are already being spoken in uh, Africa as a continent, then yes, you know, you would need to know multiple languages in order to get around. So then, you know, you have these colonial people coming over uh, to, I almost lost my religion there, but you have these colonial people coming over and, um, you know, their language then gets mixed into that as well. So it's, it's not, it's pretty common in, in places in Africa where you'll have like French is you know one of the official languages or you know Portuguese or whatever these other uh, depending on the colonists who came in so that's pretty typical. But you know, but we going to you, now you're saying the the uh, the, Af the the handbook. Why did you call it a handbook? 
Oh, well, it's not so much I called it a handbook is that's what the that's what Oxford approached me to write. They wanted they wanted a handbook. So don't get caught up on handbook. But okay. but but the handbook part is it's a type of book that's being published by presses right now to provide sort of a compendium of work in a field. So there are lots of handbooks, you know, there's like a handbook of, you know, I don't know, semantics or handbook of syntax or whatever. Um, and so the idea is just to sort of collect a lot of research that's been done in a particular area, in a particular area into one place. So it's good as a library book, but I've used it in my classes as well to give students sort of the, a breadth of knowledge around that particular subject. So that's why they're, they're handbooks. They're meant to be sort of this collection of knowledge about a particular thing. And that's what made this unique. How long is how long that project? That's the one. It took me probably about five years or so. And you, you're still working on something similar to that right now? I, fin I have two, two projects in addition to some smaller things. So, well, I, I don't even know if I could say smaller. I have several projects that I'm working on. So um, the one that you're probably familiar with is the dictionary. So the yes. Oxford Dictionary of African-American yes, right. so English. The Oxford Dictionary. Yes, the Oxford English Dictionary is probably the most well-known dictionary uh, in the world. It's, uh, they've made movies about this. <laughs> about the, that's how, uh, how much impact the, the OED. Well, I, I guess I, I, didn't, I didn't see the movie there. So There's a movie with uh, Mel Gibson as the first editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's, Mel, it's, it's actually a really interesting movie. A friend told me about it, and I can't, even, I can't think of the name of it right now, but it's Sean Penn, I believe, and Mel Gibson. Um, really fascinating history about how dictionaries are made, in particular how the OED was made. Um, but yeah, so the OED is probably the most famous dictionary in the world. Um, anything got Oxford on it, it'll be famous. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, you know, that part <laughs> so. is true. But the, I think it's because of just the extensive research that's done. So the etymology, so the history of words uh, is part of the OED. So whenever you look up a word in the OED, you know, you have the head word, and then they'll give you all of this historical information about okay. the word, when it first occurred, places it occurred, what was it like in the years, different years that it occurred. Mm -hmm. And so that's what makes the OED special. You know, most dictionaries, um, you know, Merriam-Webster or whatever dictionary, uh, Amer American Heritage Dictionary, you know, there are lots of dictionaries. Webster is probably the most famous in the U.S. It was first American dictionary, that, the, the substance of that. But not that they don't provide, they provide you with definitions, right, depending upon different things. Um, so, you know, what is it if it's a word might be both a verb and a noun, you know, what are those <laughs> definitions? What's yeah, the most okay. familiar than, than second definition, et cetera, uh, least common, same thing with pronunciations, et cetera. So it'll have all of that. But the OED is, is uh, a, a much more researched one in the sense that it has this history. So it'll tell you, give you a word, and it'll say this word first appeared in you know, 1628, and this is where, here's a sentence we found it in. And then it appeared you know, with a slightly different uh, meaning maybe in 1692. And you know, so it just takes you on until you get up to, so it's providing you with all of this historical context uh, for the word, uh, including pronunciations, 
differences in how it might have changed part of speech, right? Uh, all of those sorts of things. So, yeah. So, uh, Henry Louis Gates, aka Skip Gates, at Harvard University and director of the Hutchins Center there, wrote a grant, um, a, an NSF funded grant, the National Science Foundation, in cooperation with Oxford English Dictionary OED. It's a three-year project to create a dictionary, the first of its kind for African-American uh, English, to use that term, right? So it's not that there hadn't been dictionaries that contain uh, um, African-American language things. So Geneva Smitherman has one I've always liked called Black Talk, Black Talk Words and Phrases from the Hood to the Amen Corner. Uh, Geneva Smitherman is the queen, queen of African-American language. And, you know, there's some other ones, Juba to Jive by Charles Major. And so there's a small, and of course, online, there's um, um, Rap Dictionary and, uh, I'm sorry, Urban Dictionary. And I forgot what the other one is. So there, there are things that are sort of these lexical explorations, right? But nothing, absolutely nothing like the OED project. So this is a three-year grant-funded project. Uh, obviously, you cannot write a dictionary in three years. Uh, the OED was decades in the making, right? But, um, and, but we were only dealing with a small variety here. But even then, three years is a lot to try to get done. So they're only going, it's going to be a sampling um, of words from African-American language that they'll do. And you can go online, actually, if you look for the project, the, just type in Oxford Dictionary of African-American English, or O-D-A-A-E, and you'll find a lot of information. But one of the things that will really be uh, important is you can suggest words um, that you think should be in the dictionary. It's going to be like Wikipedia, you no, it's way better than Wikipedia. <laughs> way better though. It's uh, Wikipedia, right? Is crowdsourced knowledge, and they have editors and stuff like this. But uh, I think part of this is because it's not um, comprehensive, at least not in this initial run. I don't know what will happen. Now, now after what do you mean years. comprehensive? It's not. It's not. The goal isn't to. The initial goal isn't to try to think of every word. Okay. Right. The OED has everything. <laughs> You know, if it's a word used in English, the OED has it. This isn't going to, three years is not enough time to do that. Okay, it's, it's not the word, it's the way we use words, yeah. I would have to say, right? Yeah. Because we can take words like, they say, what you doing? We just chilling. Mm -hmm. Well, chilling to, in the dictionary means cold, temperature. But it, for, uh, for African American But, but, but our community has a whole nother meaning. Right. We just... And oh, that'll be what's in right. there, oh, okay. that definition. Like I say, what we do, like we chopping it up. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't see what that yeah. you're chopping food, you get what you can, but a yeah. conversation, we can chop that up. So, you know, we have another way of, that's what you're saying now, the right. way we use words yeah. to, to communicate, and we have always done that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's done in the days of, when they, of, of enslaved time, when they enslaved the people. They had a way of using words and songs to communicate. Yeah, but because it's a dictionary, that means it's focused on words, so words in context, right? So the meaning of things will be important. We're not talking about some of the... Slang. Slang is but a type the of vocabulary. But slang is vocabulary, our vocabulary, that's what I'm saying. Our, well, it's not our only vocabulary. Every, no. every, every language has slang. Right. Okay. Uh, slang is just a particular type of vocabulary, okay, so. You, okay, you gotta help me. Give me, give, give me some examples of words that. Of slang? No, no, I, we know slang. I could, I could sit here all day long and like, 
Like you can say well, kitchen. I, you know, the back of your, the, the, oh, you the hair on the nape of your neck that's in the back, we call it kitchen. That's not slang. That's just a word that we use. But if we say this, this party is lit, that is slang. <laughs> right? Okay, so, and, you know, slang is just temporary, you know, this passing vocabulary okay. that's hip, cool, in the know. But you can think of words that have just been a part of African-American language regardless of decades. Okay, let right? me actually like this word here, let's say so let, let me have your digits. Mm -hmm. All right, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Okay. Now that's a slang, or because it's part of the, it's part of the, it's a part of the language. Yes. So how do you describe that? I would probably classify that as slang because that came up during the time of well, that's I think that's from like the sixties or seventies, right? Long right? Time. <laughs> yeah, and and well, that's the other thing too. Slang sometimes words stick around, like we still say bad. Right, meaning mm -hmm. good. Um, okay. But we still say, you know, we still have cool, hip, jive. Right. Those are those are slang words. But so I would say thinking about the distinction between what constitutes slang versus something that's just the way that people say things in that particular language. Right. So, popo is slang. <laughs> Benjamins. Right. That is slang. That is slang to the slang. people who use it. That's communication. Well, no, they, uh, it's slang because they're the uh, ones changing it up, right? Right? They're trying to keep the but, language but, moving but, but, because they don't want everybody that need to know but, our business. But right? not just that; that's who we are. I mean, for example, dance is dance changes regularly in our community mm -hmm. because we create that. That's who we are. Yeah. We are the we are the creative source. Even watching a sport event, watching a football game, this year a player gonna be doing one thing. Next year he's gonna change it up. Yep. That's got what, a new dance, a new, got a new so, touchdown so dance. That's a, new, a part of a culture. Creativity is mm -hmm. who these people are. So you, that's not a, can you define it or can you put that in a book? Well, you could describe it, but that's not what this is. This is just about words. <laughs> all right. Then, that's this what I'm is saying. just this, about let, the lexicon. Okay. Right. All right. So words like you say, like lit, like this part is lit. That's a slang. Lit, yes. But this you part, this, this, part chill, this part is popping. This part is popping. This part is popping. Twenty four seven. Um, there's so many things that you can have in there, but I think there's. I would imagine there's going to be a balance in terms of things that are slang versus things that have just been part of the language. So one of the ones I'll be really interested to see what they do is, with is okay. So the word <laughs> okay. okay. So for white linguist, that word is, uh, they have a very white sort of history for that. But for some black linguists, they trace that word to um, African languages. So very different um, etymologies that you're looking at depending upon who was looking at the word. So I'll be curious if that is in there and how they sort of develop that etymology, for example. So I'm on the advisory board I don't make, I don't say, oh, well, we're going to, well, actually, I don't actually know all of my role on the advisory board. We haven't met as a group uh, yet. Our meeting isn't until next month, advisory board meeting. Uh, but part of this is for them to come to us and give us words and ask us about that. And we can have conversations around, yes, we think this should be included. No, we don't. Or 
I don't think this meaning is quite right. I think you need to look at X, right? Because another thing that often gets overlooked when we're talking about um, African-American language is not all black people talk the same, right? That's right. I mean, this is a mantra within uh, sociolinguistics in general. Language varies, language changes, um, and people in Cal black folk in California don't sound the same as black folk in Louisiana. Right. And, you know, nor do they sound the same as black folk in the Bronx uh, or Chicago or D.C. So there's all this variation and now, with it comes variation now, in words. Most of what determines the most, what, what would you say determine the variation, the level of education or, or, or is it variation? Where you live so linguistically, variation is determined by separation. So that separation can be, you know, geographical like mountains, rivers, streams, oceans. Uh, but that, that um, uh, separation can also be social psychological separation like... Um, Neighborhoods? Well, that's still geographic, right? So we have places, railroad tracks, right? Those are geographical structures, right? That separate. Um, you can see that, see some of that here in Louisiana, right? Um, who lives on which side of the tracks, uh, who's on which side of the river, right? Those sorts of things. So those separate, physically separate people. And when people are physically separated and don't have constant contact, changes happen. But you can also have these sort of social psychological things like racism, <laughs> um, sexism, right? All of these things in which we separate ourselves from someone else. Or, like you said, social class, um, or economic class, socioeconomic class. Those are separations, right? So, yes. But in Louisiana, you also have, in your own community, the, I don't want to use the term, how do I say this? Educated, you got educated people. <laughs> no, you got educated, you but, got you got the, people. but you got the color class. I hate to you use that term. You got colorism. Yeah. 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 So, that, that. so that calls a so you got so many different we have so many things terms. you got to overcome in your own community. Yeah, so we have so many terms around color and hair texture and all of those ways in which we have been stigmatized outside of our group that lots of people within the black community also subscribe to that. You know, that was one of the, the, the things against Jack and Jill, Jack and Jill clubs, right? It's because, or sororities and fraternities, they had the brown paper bag test. Um, so if you were not lighter than a brown paper bag, you need not apply. Well, you know, I grew up in a community that was similar to that. We couldn't go inside of the parties because of a you too dark. Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up personally knowing that experience. Yeah. Uh, so it's just so many things. So it's kind of. So I guess what I'm getting to, the, when you're talking about creating a dictionary, right? Mm -hmm. The language is just like the dance, just like the song, language just like ever just, just like the rap music, right? Yeah. It just cre the creativity goes to like a basketball game. It don't change, but the players take yeah. it to another level. Tennis, yeah. you know, Serena yeah. took it to taking it to another level. My but girl. The, but the game is still the same. So the players are changing yeah. who take it to another level. So right. does that happen in language too? Oh, sure. I, you know, language is an entity. It's a living, breathing thing. Right. And there's a connection between part of what you're talking about that makes this human language right has to do with language is more than just communication. It's about expression and, and culture and identity. And so all of those things are involved and they're all changing. 
and how we express ourselves, right, changes. It's both individual and community, right? So we have our own personal language that reflects all of our differing identities, but we also have language that makes us part of communities and we, that functions in that way as well in terms of what, how those languages change. So you got so to be versatile in your community to know when to use that. Yeah, I, you know, we all have repertoire, so we use language. You know, how you talk with your mom will be different than how you talk with your, your children or your wife or your uh, pastor or the president or whatever, right? We all do that. Uh, so we have these linguistic repertoires. But within a community, Part of that too has to deal with our identities and our identity and connection to our community. So some people in black communities are very connected to black communities. Uh, they're all in, they're about black language, black, black people, black culture, uh, social activism, all of these, in, in part of the black church, all of these sorts of things. But there are other people who are less so, right? And so what their language looks like will be different because they don't, participate. Um, it's not their identity. They see themselves as something else more so than they see themselves as black. Some people are trying to escape their blackness, right? Some people are trying to escape to become as close to white as they possibly can. And some people are all in, right? We talk about a social, sociological, psychological issue. Well, yeah, I think it's some of both. Yeah, I think all of those things are in there. Because I guess I'm looking at it like this. Uh -huh. uh, we both know we're talking about the difference around it. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> I, I, I come to your office. I say, good evening, Dr. Mm -hmm. Sanja Landhart. How are you doing today? Uh -huh. well, I go right across the street. That's the hood. I say, what's up, bro? What's yeah. going on? You know, so it, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't diverse chain, whatever you want to right. call it. Just in one, just go walk right across the street. Yeah. So. Yeah. Now, most people in other cultures is consistently basically the same. They all, when, people, everybody yeah, does that. Yeah, what, what, what yeah. Doing. I'm saying, but in your community, in our community, like, then you go right over here, there might be, like, say, a party, say, like, let's, let's get this thing to pop it. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So, yeah. it's just yeah. so many, so many, what you call that? Angles, uh, oh, like dialects. Di is I that mean, what the word? What, I don't know for? what you call that. that it's, that's in our community. If you go to but New that's Orleans, every community. So that's every community. I don't want. See, so this is one of the things that I don't want. I don't want people to think of African American language as exotic or aberrational, right? Okay. Black folk aren't exotic, right? Okay. We're just people, just like everybody else. I think we're special, but we're still people, yeah, just like everybody too. else. I don't like the word exotic language for exotic people because that just that's that's a sort of uh, uh, cultural perspective that I think is really problematic. So black folks' language and what they do isn't that different from what anybody else does with their languages. All languages have dialects, they have slang, they have people have different registers. Some are more formalized, right? Like there's high German and low German. Uh, if you are speakers of say Japanese, they have a whole honorific system, right? Languages do what they do because of the people that use them and invest in them, right? So yes, everybody has a linguistic repertoire. They have different registers. So register is variation based upon social context. So most people uh, across the world speak differently in different contexts. 
So if you are in a more formal context, most people are, they want to be on, you know, their so-called best behavior. And they want to use what they consider their best language. And when they are with their friends or in their community or in other spaces, they are using more of their vernacular. So vernacular is just a fancy word for common native everyday language, right? They are using the language that they grew up with, that they are most comfortable with, that they will revert to when they are in their private spaces or with their closest friends or family or whatever the case may be. There's this great scene from this documentary called uh, American Tongues. And it's this woman, uh, she met her, what was her fiance, they met in school somewhere, I can't remember where, somewhere in the Northeast. And he was from somewhere South. And so they were, he, she was, he was drive, they were driving to meet his family for the first time. And she said the closer they got to where he was from, the more he started sounding like those like people. people. And she was like, yeah, I knew I could marry him. And that, that, you know, the marriage was off. She was like, I could not imagine myself having babies okay, that talked like that. And this was, these were white people okay. talking about, you know, she didn't want her white kids to sound like this white man's okay. family. Well, look, all right. I, I'm thinking about it this perspective. <clears throat> I'm an old country boy. I show up at the University of uh, Louisiana State University. I'm a, I am a freshman. Have not lived like this with the cultures of people. Mm -hmm. I kind of seen what we call the white guys, the white players. They was constantly, whether it was on the field, in the dorm, it was, the, the conversation was basically the same. It never changed much. You know, but, but, you, I, you, but you were there yeah. affecting that conversation. No, no, I'm saying, but just to hear them speak to each other. Yeah. You said, man, look, we, y'all can let your, you can let your shirt down, right? You can so, tell people that all right. the time. They're not going to do I, that. But then I started seeing something, though. <clears throat> I begin to realize that our, the presence of, of the new players, mm -hmm. which we told them to call black people, begin to bring about a difference. Because something about what we was doing, people wanted to imitate it. Mm -hmm. They liked the way we, the way we yeah. sound, the, the comments we they made. They can make money off of that. Right, right. As today, we see. Everybody making money off of Black folks don't get to do that, but right. white people do, right. yes. We see that in the fact that um, it's, uh, who was that? Uh, Ralph Wiley said, uh, called it, it was something to the effect of black, you know, these white people are stealing black people's language and culture and stuff, and we're not getting paid, no. right? No. They claim, they, become... all, they call it loan, right? But we ain't getting paid. Yeah. But so white people get paid for that, right? All of these marketing and advertising executives who are using uh, black language and culture, essentially hip hop, right? Because hip hop consists of different things, fashion, music, dance, language. Right, they're using all of those things to make bank. To sell, they sell, they sell it. Yeah, One, just, black folk can't do that. I mean, yeah. black folk do to the extent that we are the we we're creating that. But like, you look at the controversies that have happened with Instagram and TikTok with black people, black creatives putting content on there, and then white people taking that, and then they are making the money off of it, and then. Society is thinking, oh, well, this white person created this and, you know, they Always get all the care. credit, but it was Always. black people, right? So black Always. people went on strike. They had a boycott against TikTok and Instagram. Um, they did? 
Yeah, calling attention to these sorts of things because people when, are when doing. When that happened, I did. Uh, I guess I don't. Um, last year, I think. Did it? Did it? Did that it was one. I, I don't. I, there's been more than one, but yes, to call attention to to sort of these things. Yeah, it don't become valuable until they start. Until they pick it up and do something with it. Yes. So you that's know, what you say. That's why all the you know blue-eyed soul white guys. But but, but can we make, all but we all know that that's what happened in the in the music industry. Yes, from there's a really good yes, there's a really good documentary on PBS from by American Masters called uh, uh, I mean it's called American Masters and it's on Buddy Guy and he talks about that in his blues career right where um, people in the UK you know the Rolling Stones the Who uh, like all of these people all these UK rock and roll the people the and stuff the, uh, they acknowledge the, black the, people the like Beatles, the Beatles. The Beatles. The Beatles came to people like Buddy Guy, and you'd see them at concerts Jay, and, and dancing. Jay and they mentioned they mentioned all them things. And they, not, and they said they never understood why white people did, why, why these Americans didn't do that. How do you steal people's music and not attribute that to them, right? So yeah, so Elvis and you know a lot of other people. Uh, but just like who, in, the, in Louisiana, where some of the mm -hmm. best cooking is. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I grew up, my grandmothers, my mom, they was all excellent cooks, mm -hmm. and we couldn't wait to go to the to go by the house to eat or whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and they we, were the ones who were cooking and, and in these fact, restaurants. And, and matter of fact, when we would go back in those days, if you didn't know how to cook, the first thing we say, "Girl, you cook like white people." Because mm -hmm. <laughs> that was like that's a slap in the face. You can't mm -hmm. cook. No but nowadays, no. that, it's yeah. like it's like we the one. They're the chefs now. They the big time. You know. And not all, yeah. it's like something wrong with this picture here. There's a lot wrong with that picture, and it, you know all of that is just uh, representative of how this country functions, how so, this country has functioned, right. and how it will continue to function. Where, but that's also part of our creativity in our language, right? Part of your, if I'm talking about language as a reflection of your culture and identity, your sociocultural and historical context, all of that—that's part of it. The fact that we are treated so badly, right? We got the blues. <laughs> We got music out of that, right? The fact that we need places to express ourselves. We get hip hop, right? Wow. We got R&B, we got soul, right? But, but once again, like you say, it, it don't, it don't, they, they have only a couple of us have benefit, they, they know how to do that. They have a few raise you up mm -hmm. and make them, but they making all the money they benefit in. Yeah, but all of these people, you know, you can look at all of the stories that have been written about all these black folk uh, who were coming up in music? Chess Records made the movie. All the, you know, all of these things. I think you know the latest one, Aretha Franklin, the uh, respect that was made. Uh, uh, Ray Charles, James Brown. All of these movies, these biopics that were made about these these musicians, these black musicians, they were all getting ripped off. The music company was taking like eighty. Uh, New Edition, right? Remember that? I forgot the name. But I don't think it was called. Maybe it was called New Edition. They weren't getting any money. They were making all so the you know the record companies were saying, oh well, we got to pay for your cars and your houses and your whatever, right? They were just stealing these. They were driving the biggest cars, the big. So they were stealing all of these money. Even these people were working hard, right? So, and that's the same thing. It's so funny. I've just I've been thinking about this the whole time too because <laughs> I just you know I was recently having this conversation in my writing group with one of the black women who's an administrator at her job that she recently took and she was saying how, you know, when she was doing her job interview, she met all these black people and she was like, oh, black folk got, got jobs here in administration and stuff. And then she gets there 
And she was like, she realized, no, they had the low level jobs. They had the jobs where they were doing all the work, but it was the white person getting all the credit. Right. You know, so they'd be like the associate dean or the assistant, whatever. But the dean, you know, or the VP or whatever was the one getting all the credit. And I was like, you know, I understand that, too. I, you know, but part of it is, you know, that's who you're working for. You work for them. Right. It's like at the, at, at the, the college level with presidents. Faculty are doing this work. Staff are doing this work. But who gets the bonuses? The Board of Regents or the Board of whatever it's called in your state, they make a contract with the president. So if, you know, faculty get X number of amount of money in grants, president gets a bonus. Faculty don't get a bonus. You know, this many students enrolled. President gets another $100,000 bonus. You know, by the time he's over with, the president's gotten a million plus in bonuses for work somebody else has done. But that's how that works, right? Well, you work for somebody well, and they get the credit. Well, I did not know the president's job worked the same way as the coach's job. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. So the, somebody they, they, else get, We yeah. need to be the coach did or the president. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Belichick is Bill. I still, you know what? I remember Bill Belichick when I was living in Ohio and people couldn't stand Belichick. They were like, Bill, Bill Belichick was like the downfall of the Cleveland Browns, right? Then Bill Belichick somehow it becomes this brilliant person you know, when he goes over to uh, New England, right? So I'd like, how, how did that happen? I still, I just still remember him and Bernie Kosar. Oh, you remember that day? It, oh my goodness. They were like, I forgot there was a, there was a, I'm not a big football fan. You but, remember names like that. But I, well, at that time, I guess I was more involved. I, I boycott I football. Oh, I forgot. Uh, yeah, you boycott. Since, and so now yeah, I don't know anything. I couldn't now, tell you a player now, now, in football. Now, tell us why you boycotted football. Uh, Colin, Colin Kaepernick and the whole, uh, um, you know, the fact that the NFL is one of those plantation places like the university, uh, all these other spaces that use black talent, black creativity, black whatever for their benefit, but do nothing to invest in and support uh, those black communities that they're getting this stuff from. So. But the Colin players, Kaep- got, the players, the players got to be held accountable for that because they could have, they could have worked with, with. See, there you go. But people, you know, yeah, people are people, so, right? So, so that, that was an opportunity. It's an opportunity and people have to stand up and also people, you know, do things in different ways. But no, you're right. I think that it is a travesty. I think uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, one of the things I've objected to is baseball has this exemption, right? They're considered a game. So they get these exemptions that they're able to operate in ways because they're a game. They're not a business in the same sort of way. So they get these benefits as a result of that. But this is all business. The casinos do the same thing. Right? This is all business. And so people are making decisions based upon their bottom line, you know, what they what they can get for their money in their pocket pocket. When you have no, it wasn't Allen Iverson. Who was a player? I can't think of who it was. This is probably 20 years ago who was like, I got to feed my family. He had like 20 kids or something. I can't remember how many oh, kids. I remember that. And we played cross oh, the line. Oh, why can't I play? Yeah, I remember cross the but line. But he was just like, you know, I need to get paid. I got I to gotta feed my family. And you making $100 million or whatever. And you talking about you got to feed your family. Like, so there are these, you know, money when money helps you only to realize who people are. Right. So Colin Kaepernick was clearly willing to say this is bigger than my comfort my paycheck 
and everybody wasn't willing to do that. Well, right? That's like when people go on strike. Some people are just like, I can't afford to go on a strike. I got to feed my family. I got to do X, Y, and Z. And even though I know I'm being mistreated, I'm going to just have to keep going to this job, right? Because I can't afford not to. Although since the pandemic, people apparently are making that decision. You know what? I'm not going to be mistreated. You know, you, every place you look is hiring because people, I don't know what they're doing, but people have walked off jobs now and they're just like, I'm not doing that you know, pay me, give me the benefits that I need. But the system, what they don't get is the system is rigged. The system is rigged against them because, for example, so salaries went up, um, uh, payrolls have gone up in the last couple of years, but inflation has outpaced that. That will always happen. You will never be able to beat the system. Because the system wasn't, was designed the way that it is so that there will be haves and have-nots. And although there are periods in history where those gaps have been closer, this period, there's, the gap has never been larger. Uh, I think only in comparison uh, to the Roaring Twenties, right, during that time before uh, the stock market crash and that wealth, depression. right? Right before the Depression, right? biggest gap between haves and have nouns ever in history. And then we get to where we are now, where there is people have no relationship. The owners of company have no relationship. Their salaries are so astronomical. They have no relationship to their secretary, their admin, the person who's actually, you know, on the factory line. There's just the separation has just gotten so great. Um, to where you now have people, you know, I'm going to have a solid gold shower curtain or whatever, right? Senseless stuff. People are spending, you know, now we have NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens. They, they have so much money compared to the average person. They just are making money. They're just creating something, calling it something that they need to invest in and have. And that, and, and people, you know, businesses don't see that. Ask for higher wages these small businesses then say, well, I've got to increase my prices. You can never get ahead. There's a movie called In Time with Justin Timberlake. I can't remember the name of the woman in the movie, but it's about, I don't know, I assume they meant it to be about this, but it's about that very thing. You know, in that case, time was currency. So time was a physical currency that you could have that you can manipulate on people in an actual tangible way. So you had to have time in order to live. <laughs> and so you were working for time as opposed to, say, money. And so, you know, people would just sort of like stop in the middle of the street because they ran out of time and then they would just die or whatever, right? Um, <laughs> no, that's interesting. And so what this, what Justin Timberlake's character was doing because his mom had, was really, you know, she was poor. So she, she was short on time. So he, he and some other people started robbing these time banks. They would go in physically take the time and then pass it out to so a Robin Hood thing. Like they take from the rich, give to the poor. Well, what did, what did the poor people, I mean, the rich people do? They just raise the prices essentially of what time was. So instead of, you know, you get 10 minutes of time for X, now you only get five minutes of time. So you stealing from us, we just going to raise, right? It's a rigged system. I remember when I was growing up, I would say, when I grow up, I want to make $50,000 a year. I was going to be rich. 
$50,000 a year, you're still poor in this country no, no. today. No, you got to say it, the, 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 I don't want to use the word ebotics, but the, the, the new dictionary. $50,000. No, 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 you're poor. Oh, oh, that one. Yeah. You're poor. You're poor now. So, but all that, rel all that rel is relevant. It's, it's relative. relative. It's all, yeah. But look, I'm going to share this with you. When I was in prison, okay, you could not have what we call cash money, mm -hmm. fiat money, they call mm -hmm. it. You couldn't have anything that's contraband. Mm -hmm. But what you could have, because you get mail letters, so you had stamps. Mm -hmm. So stamps became the currency in the prison. So what you learn is that wherever you are, you create the currency to exchange for whatever you want to use. Yep. So you know, and because you, none of it has, none of it is inherently valuable. Right. It's the and, value you yeah. give it. So that's what I learned. The yeah. people there that gave it value. You can take cash money and push it aside. If you don't say, I don't want this. Well, I'm not cash use used to not even be a thing, right? right? Because nobody wanted cash. They wanted the actual gold or gold. silver or and, whatever. And that's kind of how the system has yeah. tricked us again. Yeah, all of it is just, it's all like, it's, it's a scheme. It's not fake. just that. You, none, nobody has that money. Right. There is no, there is no gold or silver backing, that backs that backing. up. It's the no, name no, of the country. No, they, they backed. The, what they say is backed by the good and fate of his people. Of that government, yes. <laughs> no, the people. Yeah. So, because you're backing, you're backing the money. It's well in the sense of a democracy, but it is the government. It is it's but, the government. We have go, this place but, that we but, call Fort Knox. But, but who is the that, government? The that's people? like saying that's, who's the business. It's the people, now the, right? Now the Supreme Court said businesses are people, and they have so. But there's 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 nothing in government like it's it's this amorphous that's thing exactly. that's out no, there. No, but I, I had to go to court full one day. faith full faith of the government is no, what you're. I had to yeah. go to court one day, right? And the guy stepped up to the mic. I represented myself. I was in federal mm -hmm. court. The guy stepped up to the mic. My name is James John Galt. Mm -hmm. I'm here on behalf of the United States government. Yeah. So I walked up. They said, step up. I said, I'm Al Diazober here on behalf of Lyman Day White. They all looked at me. I'm serious. They looked at mm -hmm. me. They said, well, well, how can you... I said, how can he represent the government? Who is the United States government? Who is he representing? I don't know. Who is that? Can he step up? So I don't see nothing. Well, that's a, something I dare. So I, and that's why I dealt with it because that's the way I saw it. Where, but where, I mean, it's the same. You know, I understand. You know, those are all sort of these amorphous, intangible things, abstractions, they right? They got people well, out here. You know, but let yeah, me ask when, this question yeah. here. So you're saying that a lot of people, you're saying that during the COVID, that if people, you know, after COVID. People just said, I'm not, I'm not playing Because this. what people saw is that, hell, if the government can pay me to stay home, they paying me to stay home. They paying everybody. People start thinking, well, you got this kind of money. You can take care of me, or you can do a lot more than what you're doing. Mm -hmm. They literally paid the whole United States. To well, stay us, home. They didn't pay us, the, but yes. But, and they pay, and the, like I said, people with money, they got mm -hmm. millions of dollars just to stay home. So that done something to a lot of people. Gave them a lot to think about. Like, we giving mm -hmm. all this money to Ukraine. I mean, billions. I know people say, well, Ukraine deserves it. For what? I don't live there. I don't work there. I don't know nobody there. <laughs> you know, taxes, yeah. nobody being paid here. So 
you know, a lot of guys got to figure some I, of stuff out. Yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with, with what's called foreign aid. But what I do have a problem with, you're right, there are, like, my mom, was it my mom? Was it me or Paul? I can't remember where I was, but this was like this past, this week. So sometimes I was just saying how this, this person was in a really old, beat up car that probably shouldn't even be on the road. And I'm like, see, people shouldn't have to live like that, right? Like there should be something that, you know, if that's how you have to live, you should be able to get a car. Like somebody should just be able to give you a car so that for all sorts of reasons, right? Environmentally bad, right? I'm sure that car was like 20 years old. Paint was barely on the car. I don't even know what, couldn't tell you what color paint used to be the car, right? Uh, you know, smoking, coming out. Like, I just, for the, for the sake of the rest of us, please take that car off the road. Give that person a car, right? Like, there needs to be something, right? Um, you know, housing. I'm like, there are some places, I'm just like, why do people, why, why are they making people live like that? You cannot tell me that we can't do better as a country. Of course you know, can. Medical. Why is it that people, well, this is even beyond health disparities, like black women die at higher rates in childbirth or during uh, uh, pregnancy than white people uh, in this country. You know, and clearly it's not a matter of money because Serena Williams nearly died. Serena Williams got all the money, but Serena Williams nearly died uh, from her pregnancy and childbirth, right? So it's not even about the money. Clearly it's about race. Uh, if you got the money, but, but it's like people should, why are we live? Why does this society allow us? Well, we live in, on the one hand, we live in a democracy, right? That's our form of government. When we live in a, what's essentially a, uh, vulture capitalist society, which is your economic system. And those two things are at odds. And I don't think we've seen that more than what we have seen since the 2016, presidential election and what's happened with all of that. And so we had a president who believed in winners and losers. And if you weren't a winner, then too bad that you were a loser. Well, what's a loser? He called John McCain a loser who was a POW because he got caught. Trump never served a day in anything, right? Uh, so if you have a system that's set up like that, that if there is this perception that there are winners and losers, and we know the winners are supposed to be white, most, and, and they're supposed to be white men. But then that's how this country always was settled, right? This country was built for white men who had land and money. Who came stole the land. They had well, they stole the land, <laughs> right? They, but, they, but you had to be landed, yeah, right, yeah. landed gentry, right? That's who, you know, and that is the same thing today, which is the same thing we're seeing with voting rights, right? Republicans don't want everybody to vote because Republicans, the Republican Party, at the, the way that it is right now, is so is still wedded to this landed gentry, right? They only want white wealthy businessmen, white wealthy men to vote. And you got too many, all these black folk out here, these immigrants out here, these whatever out here who aren't that thing. We can't have them doing. We can't have them voting. They don't really know what they're doing right? They don't really understand the value of what they have, right? That was the same sort of argument around racist, I mean, around uh, slavery. Well, these black people just don't know any better. We have to show them. We have to sort of teach them how to be. But, they can't handle anything. But you know, I, I, I beg to differ on that. 
Mm -hmm. I'm going to make two statements to kind of show. You talked about money and, uh, and being taken care of the guy with the car. I was sitting in prison. They basically paid me to sit in prison. They didn't pay you much to sit no, in no, prison. They, 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 they paid you something every day. They, yeah. But the people who ran the prison, owned the prison, they make all, all the money, right? So it's another system where the well, money, where the, where the they benefit. are in the sense that we have gone to privatize prisons. Right. And if you privatize something, that part that makes it part of capitalism. That's what that's, and their that's, goal is to make money. So we make money by turning towns into places that want to fund prisons and not schools. Exactly right. Because this is supposed to be because, the job of the government. Because, but what is what do, what do Republicans tell you? We don't want a welfare system. We don't want the government to provide a social safety net. Right? We want small government and we want businesses to take over that role because we are in a supply and demand economy. But what they don't tell you is they want that supply and demand to look a certain way. Exactly right. So when black or not even just black when any when somebody says when the when the demand says we want x if that doesn't fit that white male landy gentry business perspective then all of a sudden they have a problem but it's like well didn't you tell me this is a supply and demand system and i'm demanding this other thing oh wait 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 we didn't mean it like it's so it's all rigged i just see it as all rigged the system is never way. we are never meant to succeed in this system. So if we were never met, we were never supposed to be part of this system. That's part of the problem, right? Same thing with women. Women weren't supposed to be part of the system. This was for the, for the, the European men. That's what it's for. Well, for it's for white men, period. It's for white men with they land. They only came from one place. Gentry. Huh? <laughs> they come from no, uh, they, they Well, they've come, come from all, at this point, they've come from all over yeah, the but place. Yeah, but they only but, come from, you know, Europe, Europe, right? So there's a European system. A well, Asia, system. I would say system. Asia is included in that as well. But yeah, I mean, there are places that weren't Africa, uh, uh, weren't sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, um, you know, because, but that's because there, there's a belief in a hierarchy. And also this so perpetual. So they're talking about the queen of queen too? God no, no, I mean, soul. not necessarily, not royalty necessarily, but, but I'm just saying. Benefiting. But I'm just saying, just in terms of there's a hierarchy. So people have hierarchies. And so they believe that they're, again, you know, you can talk about it as winners and losers. They believe there are people at the top and other people at the bottom. Black people are always at the bottom. I don't care how, you, you can't stack a group beneath black folk, right? I don't care whatever system we're at, black people at the bottom and somebody else is above them. Whether it's, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. But, but white people are at the top of that system. And the way sort of society has been constructed since the, especially with the construction of race. So you can't have racism without okay, race. You said construction, construction. Those are constructions. Okay, now, now, yeah. Race was never, race became something. It didn't always exist. Somebody came up with a system based upon what okay. they called but, race. But, so the English language has gone through a lot of transformation, right? Remember the thing we call English didn't start until 449. The Anglo-Saxons and Jutes came together in this space that we now call England, land of the Angles. Anglo and the Saxons. Angles, right? So um, that language developed as part of this Germanic history. But then in 1066, we have the Norman invasion, 
English is sort of Roman, Rom, Romanized, right? Uh, because Norman is French. And so then, even though it's a Germanic language, then it starts looking, there are all of these other changes that happen. English is made up of so many other different things, right. more so than most other languages, mm -hmm. right? So Latin and Greek are at its base, right, in terms of where we get our vocabulary from. And so English just looks a lot different from a lot of other languages because of the impact of these different things on its history. So when we talk about, we have multiple words that mean the same thing. One of the reasons we have that is because at one point in history, it came out of this Anglo-Saxon, Jutes, Welsh, all of these places. Other times it came directly from Latin or it came from Greek or it came from French, right? And they have different words, but we have words that mean, they basically mean the same thing. It's just a matter of what was the etymological history? How did this word get to this language? So a lot of words have just very different meanings because they entered the language from different places at different times. Okay. Okay, now. So I don't know when the term, I don't know, that's a good thing. We could look that up in the OED. <laughs> when did the word race come into the English language and what was that original meaning? But this is something we call the etymological fallacy. Just because a word started someplace, that doesn't make that its true and only definition or its true and only usage. Because as I told you, language changes and language varies. And so, for example, gay meant merriment, uh, you know, joy, whatever, at one point, and then it went through an etymological change, and then gay then somehow got connected, or gay meant happy, right? And then gay became associated with somebody who was a homosexual, right? And then those meanings had different interpretations. So there we can talk so, about. So, so whoever got the power can change the words? Anybody can change Anybody words. Can words, all words are made up. Mm -hmm. That's one of the first things I taught my son. That's and he powerful. will throw that's, that back into me every day. That all words are made up. So what we do with them changes. But that makes sense I can tell you, I, I learned, I, I have followed this word since I was in undergraduate school because my professor told me about it and it was uh, my bad. At that time, when I was at the University of Texas at Austin in the late 80s, I had never heard that before, my bad. And he, my professor, uh, who was a dialectologist, he had started tracing this. He was just like, I know when this first happened, my bad. And now, that's just ubiquitous. Everybody says my bad. Like, I, had, I, I have seen the development of that word since the 1980s, I got to see what happened. That word spread mm -hmm. across the entire U.S. When the, when the, when the Europeans grabbed hold of it, because we always, now we said in our community, my bag. Yeah, but that's see, I've never heard, but, but, but that's was, something different. No, no it, was, it was my bag. That's what they said, because mm -hmm. that, that had a meaning to it. Like, what people meant is that, if that's, that's my. If, if, if it was full of something, it was, that was, okay, that's my bag. People say, who bag is this? This is my bag, right? Because <laughs> you know, Oh, that's not how I was yeah. thinking so, of bag. No, no, no. That, that's how it started out. So people, when I was a, a young boy, mm -hmm. people would say, oh, my bag. Not bad. Martin started saying bad on that show, Martin Lawrence show. 
That's no, well, bad it, came way. What bad was way before no, Martin. Wasn't much, but we would say my bag. This, this is my bag. But my bad means that's my mistake. Yeah, same. But my my but, bag. But I'm saying, but I'm just showing how the how the words. But I don't. I'm not. But, well, it, I'm not it, seeing it, the connection between those two. But still, my point is, people make up stuff. All the time, but we the best. That's the point we make it. We the best at. But I'm asking you about. We the best at. I'm asking this question here though. But words yeah. that are the most powerful words are the ones in the law book. And those words are not do not have general meanings, do not have general thought process. Because those words can go on and on and on, but you can't use them in court. What do you mean? Because right now, yeah. as, as a college professor, mm-hmm. everything you do, you have to make sure you're careful to be able to Whatever you do has to be able to stand up. Whatever you write has to be able to stand up and support you in a court of law, right or wrong. Even if you, if you sit as a chair or something, me, you have to make sure that you're doing things that if case, in case you got to go to court, that you, you've taken care of your business, you properly articulate in writing or what you need to say. Because the court of law... To some extent. Because yeah, the court of law, the words that somebody say... Ignorance is no excuse mm-hmm. for the law. Yes. Because so universities, you, you, you that's what they do. Right. Because they don't have no general terms in the courthouse. <laughs> you can't go to... Uh, yeah. You know, well, the tricky thing about, you know, that's... Language is complicating this. And so, And that goes back to what I was telling you about the history of the English language. That's where I started off. Uh-huh. I, I started off in looking at the history of the English language. And that's the ask... Whatever. Well, no, just, it's just the history of the English language, um, you know, where English started and how it developed over the centuries, right? So it starts in 449 and you work your way through. We have different periods of English, right? We have that development. We have old English, we have middle English, we have uh, early modern English, modern present day English, etc. cetera. Um, even in some cases, we have post-colonial English. But that has to do with, when, when English first started, it wasn't a written language, it was oral, you know, so if you know, so you know, like, yeah, that's, that's kind of a a trick question. What came first language of the writing, but anyway, um, so it was oral, but remember Latin Greek precedes English, but you're not talking about the language that preceded all of those. No, we're talking that, specifically that, that, that about is, that English. is the, in the in Africa when they was writing. They was the first people to start writing math, science, chemistry. Right, but this so, is so. Here's the connection I'm trying to draw in terms of English starts at a particular place, but it is when, when way it, after all of these other languages right. had started. So my okay, point is, when right. we look at English, one of the last languages. Develop one of the last developing languages. I don't know if I'd call it the one of the last developing languages, but Just what like I'm Christianity, saying is there like, are other languages that are way older than English. Name, name but my, I just did. I said Latin and Latin and Greek, um, Sumerian, um, Barbarian, you know, uh, I don't know, Moors, <laughs> the Egyptians. Well, yes. But my point, yes, all of those, anything that had to do with any, anything biblical, that's all older than English. But my point about it is, as it developed, everybody looks towards some kind of model, right? So English looked towards Latin and Greek as a model. 
So even when you had like uh, grammars, you know, these were like really early grammars of English and uh, dictionaries, these were all glosses based upon Latin and Greek. So all the writing was in Latin and Greek. Then you start getting these translations, right? It isn't, one of the reasons, I actually talk about this in my latest book, <laughs> but one of the reasons why the printing press was named the greatest invention of its time, right? Of that millennium, of the millennium was the printing press, was because the printing press, one, allowed writings to be done in English, English of the time of that era and to codify it, even though the pronunciations were different, but it still codified it. Because prior to that, in terms of what all of the people who were creating books, they started by doing stuff in Latin, right? So when I go back and I look at when I was doing this sort of archeological work, you know, you'd have to do these glosses. You'd have to gloss words into English because it was written in Latin. And then when they started writing in English, right, it was still trying to follow these Latin grammatical things. So it was still kind of, you know, still kind of, of strange. And that's why I'm saying, so all legal stuff stayed in Latin all right, and Greek. Now who wrote the Latin? Who was writing it? Yes. The, the monks? Well, who was the monks? What part of the country, remember what part of what do you mean? What part? They Everybody were, across across the globe, but, but the basically, monks were writing it, regardless of what country. But they it were basically in. was the Moors who occupied Spain. The Moors were black folks who occupied Spain. Yeah, yes, they were, they, they but, they're the ones who they helped to but, develop. But any country, it was the the clergy who were in charge of all of that. Because first of all, it took money, and who had the money? Well, before the Europeans came in power. No, it's, it's not even about Europeans per se. It's just about who had the money. Churches had the money okay. and governments had the money, right? And okay. these two, if you watch any of those, docu not documentaries, but even any of those period pieces like the Tudors or, you know, whatever, you see the relationship between church and state and how that's why we have the U.S. supposedly, right? <laughs> they were trying to escape that system and then they just created one that was even worse, right? No, no, but no, though no. they held power, they held all knowledge. Like I have a friend right now who's actually from New Orleans, but she's in, um, she's on a uh, fellowship right now in uh, Rome, trying to get this data about black people, essentially. And what type some of, of data? it, I was just uh, it's, it's, you know, these are historical, these are archived, this is archival work, so documents. I know this. But you know who has this, they, right? They, they, stole the it. they stole it all, and the Vatican stole it all, <laughs> you know that. The Vatican has yeah, it. Yeah, they stole it. Just, but the Vatican hides stuff. You can't just go no, there and find uh, stuff, because the, these are all run by, I'm but, telling you, the clergy. But just like, just like the, the people of South <laughs> Africa, the people of South Africa requested the diamond back from Queen Elizabeth, that's on her crown. You heard about that? Mm-mm. Says so worth five hundred million dollars that they, they stole from Africa, the diamond, the biggest yeah. diamond, is on her crown. Yeah, so, yeah that's a anyway. whole other thing. Go I don't even want to talk about the monarchy because that's a whole <laughs> other set of raping and pillaging of. of no, no, I just just uh, thought I threw throw that in. I know it's it's you know people are people are getting up the nerve and said we want our stuff back. Yeah, want it back. You stole it, been happening. You too. stole it. That's why when I went to London, one of the times I went to London, and I think it was. I think all of us, me, Paul, Isaac, had gone for something. Might have been soccer, or I don't know. But anyway, we went, and we went to the British Museum. 
And I just struggled being in the British Museum because everything I saw, I'm like, y'all stole this. They don't, nothing, nothing the British is all of, of other cultures. It was all stolen. And, uh, I just, everything I looked at, I was doc, like, y'all stole that? Doc, <laughs> Dr. Ben told us, I went to Egypt 33, 30, 32 years ago. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ben said, if you want to study Africa, you got to go to British, Britain. So they, 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 all of it's in their museum. So they don't stole it all, but they don't. Yeah. They don't. You they don't call it. They don't call it. They don't call it. Italy, because the Vatican got all this they, stuff. They don't call it theft. They call mm -hmm. it. Uh, you know, they were preserving. Now they go into the tombs. You call that, yes. that, that anywhere else that grave robbing. You don't go into the Europe and go into the tombs over there. Why you don't go into Africa? Because it's all. There? I didn't. I tell you why. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> I tell you why? They're saving us from ourselves. Yeah, we don't know ourselves. any but, better. But could we they're stealing everything, taking it to you. There's a there's a there's a new show. Uh, the second season came fin just finished up called Reservation Dogs, and in the second season there is a scene where the reservation police, so the Indian, I think they call them Indian police, find these white people doing some kind of crazy ceremony. I don't even want to describe the ceremony, but the point was one of the things that they were saying when the, you know, the reservation police encountered one, they didn't respect them because they're like, oh, you're not a real police, you're reservation, you're, you know, an Indian uh, police. But the other thing was they were like, we want to take this land because y'all don't know what to do with it. You just don't understand, right? So the land had like some kind of, I don't know if it was oil or something valuable on it. Like y'all just don't understand. Y'all don't, y'all, you know, you're just stupid. You don't, we have to save you from yourselves because we know how to appreciate this and you don't, right? But that is the history of racism and this whole idea of a one group of people having power and supremacy over another group of people. In particular, I'm specifically looking at this as white people because their perspective has been, we have to save you from yourselves. They really have believed that they have been saviors, you know, in this missionary work, right? right. What's the first, just think about how powerful language is. What is the very first thing that missionaries do when they go to, when they've gone to, to something? Train, train you to follow them. <laughs> First thing they do is they learn your language so they can write the Bible in your language so you can you. read what they but, want. But you. I want you to know too that, but you know, but, but that's go back. This, we're gonna go back to the semantic semantics of words and mm -hmm. how powerful words are. Mm -hmm. Let's take. I'm dealing with the linguistics. The word black. What is the meaning of it? Well, again, um, race was that's a creation. And so how I use that word when I am referring to people, not crayon colors, but people, I'm referring to people, that includes all people who had this historical African ancestry, in particular in sub-Saharan Africa, but I like to include all Africa. I don't like that because I think they're all black. Um, and so I don't mean like current, I'm just saying historically, like hundreds of years, black is what I'm going with. So black as a diet, when we talk about the diaspora, that means black encompasses all those people who are connected to that particular ancestry uh, all the way out as they've been scattered across the globe. Whereas if I said African-American, that's specific to that ancestral people that are in America, right? So we have, so lots of people are part of black, 
but they they have all specific locations because they have been dispersed hence diaspora right so there are black people in the caribbean there are black people in europe there are black people in black people all over the world but they they're specific um what's the word i'm looking for national identity or even ethnic identity varies under this huge umbrella term black is controversial um i was a part of this uh, uh what is it this i forgot what they call themselves but anyway is this black british group and i was part of this conversation there were people from all over the world from africa from in the uk i was one of the few people from the u.s and having that particular conversation because people, some people are like, I'm not black, I don't like that term. Some people are, I prefer African. Other people, like, everybody had these names. And in part, I don't know that we'll ever have a settled thing about that because those are, um, those are sort of like ethnographic things. Like what a particular group, how it sees itself, both in community and within the world, varies. Those worldviews vary. So I can make this description, right? And I say, black to me, if I use that term black to refer to a people, it's all of these people with African ancestry. And I see that African ancestry as it has been manifested based upon, in part, skin color, these sort of uh, phenotypes, right? Skin color, hair texture, uh, facial features, all of these sorts of things that we associate with what's considered this African ancestry. But then other people are just like, you know, well, African includes a wide range of people who have particular phenotypes. And it's not just being people who have darker skin. Like I like highly melanated, right? I think we should start using terms based upon, based upon melanin. If we want to, want to, that's what and I'm the, really thinking. I mean, that's probably the, the more. Yes. More, so you're going to eliminate some people. Melanin here. deficient. You're we got our melanin <laughs> deficient <laughs> folk. And then you got us highly melanated but, people. Look, I won't let y'all know now. She, she don't have nothing against uh, the melanin deficient or white people. because no, she's, she's married to. Well, you can be. Uh, this is Okay, I will say this. You can be married to folk. Just because you're married to somebody else don't mean you not whatever. Because we got a lot of racists, uh, right? Uh, that didn't stop uh, these founding fathers from procreating with black folk. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me give you something. I, I need some help with this here. <clears throat> but wait, I will okay. say, I do want to emphasize that point. People have a problem when you say, like I say, I'm pro-black. I'm, I'm rooting for everybody black, right? That doesn't mean I'm anti-white. They're not in opposition to one another, That's right? right? I'm pro, yeah. if I want to say that, I'm pro-humanity. I want all people to be, treated, to be treated the way that they're supposed to be treated in the eyes of God, right? We're all supposed to love one another. But I can also go and see that some people as a group aren't treated that way. And so we are called to be social justice. We are biblically called to be social justice warriors. And as a result, the people I'm seeing oppressed are black people, brown people, native people, right? Uh, especially when you're a woman, right? I see that oppression and I'm rooting for all of those people to get the humanity that they deserve, right? But there are white people who fall into that group. So uh, during the, was it the Chinese Exclusion Act, 
Was it Chinese? No, this was this involved Japanese. Okay. So this Japanese person sued because they were being discriminated against, right? So we know there were the laws about segregation with black folk. And so, but then they just sort of generalized that to if anybody not white, right? So this Japanese person, I can't remember the details, it's in the book, uh, sued because they were just like, well, if it's because the whatever these Jim Crow type segregation laws were written, it uses the term white. Well, this person was Japanese. Who's whiter than Japanese? This person was like, if it says white, I'm white, right? My skin by, is by, actually by white by, by definition. definition. The court then had to actually show what the assignment, we understood the assignment. They had to show what the assignment was, which was, uh, oh, it's not about whiteness. It's not really about whiteness. Okay. It's about a particular group of people and you're not it. They had to actually spell that out then. Where is that? You got to, to pull that up. I'll have to. I can't remember. I, I'll have, I can look it up. I can send it to you. Uh, I can send you the page. It's, it's a legal case. I can send you the legal what, case. What, do you remember what year that was in the, in, in the... I can't even remember that right now. But it was pretty interesting no. to come across. It was that. in... It had to have been in like the early 18s. Mid-18s. Okay. Something like that. I, I'll, I'll have to look it up. I cannot remember the name of the case or the year right now. The fascinating part for me was they had used this term white and we already knew, like we understood the assignment that it wasn't about whiteness. It wasn't about, it was just about the fact that we weren't, we, we were who we were and they had, white supremacy was alive and well. And so when you get other people saying, oh, well, if you just want my skin to be white, I can show you that, you know, in the same way that we have people passing, right? I don't know if you saw the Nella Larson movie, uh, Passing, Okay. And it was like, you know, oh, I love my wife and she's beautiful and gorgeous and then I find out she's black and then you want to kill her, right? Like it's, it's, it's the, the whole mental gymnastics people have to play to uphold that system is amazing. Logic goes out the door. Christ goes out the door, right? Love goes out the door. Like all of these things just go out the door over something that someone created at some point to establish a system that said we have haves and have nots, or we have a hierarchy, right? That people are on a hierarchy. There are people who, well, the Ku Klux Klan is a religious group, right? Ku Klux Klan believed God gave them white people to be at the top of the chain to take care of essentially the animals that must be it, right? <laughs> that we're the animals, like they think they are caretakers, right? That's how they created that whole thing about, you know, this was a benevolent master, right? We loved them for the animals that they were. They were like pets. Well, no, they were worse than pets because people wouldn't do their dogs that way, right? But they would do people Matter that fact, way. Matter of fact, we say that, just treat me the way you treat your dog, dog. I'll be good. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I'll be good, we'll be, yes. we'll be good. Just treat I'll me the way you treat that. your dog, I'll, I'll be take good. take that. But I want to go back to something too, what we said earlier. Uh, and I, I kind of like talking about the law. When I was in prison, I started studying the law books. Mm -hmm. And I realized the words had a, had a more specific meaning. I, I, as a, as a Christian, I believe that the law, law, two things, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love others as Christ loved us. That's the law for me. Now let's go back one more time. We're going to talk about the dictionary because that's, mm -hmm. that's going to be a, that's a big project. Mm -hmm. And it's not the, not the first of its kind. 
But it's one of the first one in a long time. It's the first of its, it's kind, first of its kind for African American language to be um, for this particular project. So it's not that dictionaries haven't had words that are specific to African American language or definitions that are like you know for kitchen. I, I don't know if it does or doesn't, but it may have that definition for Black communities. Um, I'm actually a consultant on another dictionary called Collins Dictionary. To uh, I How you spell it. Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S. It's a British dictionary. So I'm working for them to go through their words, where they talk about it in relation to African-American language or having some sort of uh, etymology related to that, um, which is overdue. I had, to, I, needed, I had to ask more time for that. But so I'm consulting with them to go through the words that they've given me. So, uh, but yeah, I did get permission because from both of them. So they both knew. It's like, here's what someone, I think Collins had asked me before anyway. And I was like, so I talked to Casper Graffel, who's the person over OED for what we're doing. And so they were both like, yeah, 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 there's not going to be a problem, et cetera. But so there are, so dictionaries clearly have words that are related to African American language and they need specialists to come in and consult with them about that. So I'm doing that for Collins Dictionary as well as doing that for OED. Yeah. yeah, so in 2025, there will be a printed dictionary and it will contain, I think Casper has set it at a thousand words. So, you know. That's a lot? No, sound no like it. it's not a lot at all. I didn't think so at all. Never. I can come up no. with a thousand words. Words have millions of languages. I, I mean, I can, I languages come, have millions of words. I can, I can come up with a thousand myself. I could, I could sit here and <laughs> we both we could write a thousand words. Yes. Uh, so, no, it doesn't, it won't, that's why I said it won't be comprehensive, but it will have, you know, some substance in terms okay. of a starting point. Okay. Now, now, would you say it really going to end up being online? That's probably going to end up going to be. I'm sh I believe there will be a digital component as well. You know, that's where the real fun will come. Uh, yeah, that's, paper that's is bound and, you know, but digitally then you can easily add things, make changes. Um, you know, you'll get a chance to see what people think about it and what they're saying. Everybody, I'm sure, will have an opinion of why didn't you include this word. So there'll be the opportunity for those sorts of things, right? Because it's been kind of pretty interactive. That's why I'm saying they have a website. So you can go to the website and make comments, make suggestions. Now, now, now what the website is? I should know that URL, <laughs> shouldn't I? I, sh I should know that URL and I don't, but you know what, I'm gonna get it for you. So if you go to OE, it should be more than just OED. The page it's taking me to is publicoed.com, but I think, please be another link. Yeah, this page actually tells you about what will be recorded. Um, it's, I think they, oh, because they have a Q&A page on here too. I wonder if I can't see it, everything, because I'm on my cell phone and, trying and, to do and it. And what's the name mind. of it going to be? What's the name of the dictionary going to be called? Oxford Dictionary of African American English. You know, we had a, we had a pretty good... Uh, Yes. Uh, rap session. Yes. Yeah, Too bad Samia wasn't here because I tell you, I have interviewed uh, with uh, interviewed Samia before, and she's very intelligent. Love talking with her. Oh, uh, she has yeah. lots oh. of opinions, and so yes. She get that from her daddy. Intelligence <laughs> 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 get from her mom, but the opinion uh, get from her daddy. No, but she's very thoughtful. 
I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. You know, if she says something, it's it's usually stuff she's she's thought about it, and then she takes you through that process. And so I appreciate that. Mm, that's good to know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She has, you have a very talented daughter who I'd like to see her explore some of a variety of her skills uh, that uh, she has. Uh, we know that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We know that too. So is there anything else that you can think about that you might want to add? Before I can you tell you about on? my other projects. I have uh, the project, I just finished a book. Uh, it will be out in January. Uh, it's available for pre-order now, maybe, but it's called Language in African American Communities. Well, you already got your book out. That's my new book coming out. Oh, okay. You be, you be, you be But that's not the diction. That's not a dictionary. This is an action. This is a book. Okay. You no, know that no. students can take use in classes and. Well, well, and for students. Anybody. Okay. I'm just saying students get, yeah, but it's for, you know, it's anybody. Now, now, what, now, what the purpose of this book? So I was asked to write this book by, by Routledge, um, which is a publishing company, in, it, in collaboration with my professional organization, Linguistic Society of America. So they have, a, they have a partnership where they produce this thing called Routledge Guides to Linguistics. And, you know, they're meant to be sort of introductory books. So, you know, there's like a, a entry, there's a book on child language, uh, sign language, um, gender and language, you know, these introductions to topics. And so they asked me to do this years ago um, to write this book, right about the time uh, the handbook came out, the Oxford Handbook of African American Language, right around the time I had either just finished, I was either finishing it or I just finished it. And uh, and also now it's finally coming out. So that tells you that would have been in like it would have been ago. like 2015, 20. Uh, oh, that book, the handbook came out in 2015. So it was they either asked me and say 2015 or 2016. And so the book will just be coming out. So that I because I just you know things happen. I just didn't have time to write it. So I finally wrote the book. Um, so I'm really proud of it. Um, it's meant to sort of be an introduction to language use in African American communities. So. It's pretty interesting. It is very interesting. I learned some things along the way as I was uh, doing some research in different areas related to things I brought up. Um, I use a different tone, so I use African American language in the telling and talking about African American language. Um, it's. I think it's a pretty. You know, I think it's pretty deep. I kind of liked it. I really enjoyed the process of doing that. But wouldn't you say? But one of the untold language in our community is the one without speech. What do you mean? Just that look. <laughs> oh, now those are some other things. <laughs> some other things. So those are what I call, refer to as sort of these paralinguistic things. So there's the language part, and then there are sort of the nonverbal, um, stylistic, even discourse level things. So I talk about that. There's a one place where I talk about, a couple of places where I guess I talk about that. One has to do with African-American women's language, where we talk about this really one of my favorite. Why are you going to just say African-American women language? Because the article is about this group of African American girls and women and how black women, how black women teach, pass on from generation to generation this, the idea of, of laughter. And there are different ways of how laughter functions for black women, and it's not funny necessarily, right? So it's one of my favorite articles of all time. Um, and it was written by Marcelina Morgan, who is at uh, the Hutchins Center in, uh, at Harvard University. 
And so she runs the uh, hip hop archive. But anyway, so I, I talk about a little bit about that, that this, about this laughter. And in places I evoke someone like Toni Morrison, who is, you know, perfect when it comes to talking about African-American women's language in her expression, uh, how black women, I actually wrote, did a, a lecture, uh, what was it, in 2020? I did a lecture, a downtown lecture series for SBS where I talked about African-American women's language. I will send it to you because I love the lecture. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to give it at South by Southwest, but there wasn't a vaccine at the time and stuff, and I was not going to Austin, which was in the, the heat of a pandemic, you know, COVID explosion, uh, explosion. So I didn't get a chance to give it at South by Southwest. But it's one of my favorite things. I'll send it to you. It's Thank wonderful. You. I love it. Um, and apparently so did my dean and the university because they wanted me to talk about this all over the place. So, um, but anyway, but that the, 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 there are these paralinguistic things that African Americans. Not that men don't do this, but I'm talking about women. Yeah, just so like black, just li like black too. lives matter. Just because I'm talking about black folk, <laughs> don't mean y'all don't have. But anyway, um, so so there's that project. And then the other project I was just asked to do, and I agree to do it, is with Cambridge University Press. And I hadn't worked. With, I don't think I've worked with Cambridge before. You worked the big dogs. Yeah, I hadn't worked with them, and they apparently I was um, um, referred, suggested, nominated, I forget, I can't think of the word I really wanted, it's not any of those, but uh, by the previous editors of this book called Language, uh, Language in the USA, and uh, they are both, one of them's my mentor who's retired, actually both of these men are now retired, and so Cambridge wanted to restart this. And so they both recommended me for it. And so Cambridge came knocking and they've asked me to do this language in the USA, which is a edited book of a collection of, of um, articles um, that have to do with what it says, language in the USA. So I get to start this project, which they want to create as a textbook. And it's a huge project. And so I'm going to start working on that uh, next month. To get that going, that's going to take a while to do. Well, so, I got a question for you because you got to give me this information uh, for for you to end up where you are. I mean, it's uh, blessings. It really is. It really is. And uh, nobody have given you anything. You work mm -hmm. for. You continue to work hard. I stand on the prayers of those who came yeah, before me and, and my really, ancestors. So, what? Where did you get your motivation, your encouragement to? Nobody in your family had a master's degree at the time. Very few had college degrees, right? They was the first to get a, uh, go to college. college. And then I think she was the first to finish. And then Renee went and then she finished. And she was, Renee was working on my master, her master's when I was in graduate school, right. working so, on my so PhD. That, that so she might have finished her master's. I think she finished her master's before I finished my PhD. I'm assuming that's the case. But yeah, so you're looking at, and my sister finished her bachelor's degree years after. So, um, so, so yeah. So Renee, Renee got Renee was motivated uh, for a lot of reasons to you know for higher education. You know, she she went ahead went ahead on it. Whatever, Tulsa, and got her uh, at Oral Roberts, Oral Roberts got her uh, master's degree. Yeah. But you decided you that's your 
I've always enjoyed school. So you said, I'm going to get me a PhD. Where did that come from? I don't think, well, it wasn't anything that I knew about or, or understood from the beginning. It was something, my goal, I think I've had, I had the goal to become a teacher from a very early age. Oh, okay. uh, so I've always been interested in education and learning. I'm a lifelong learner, and that's just, I, I could be in school forever. And, you know, I chose a profession <laughs> that allows school, me huh? to do that, right? Oh, you're so, in school forever. Yeah, I, you know, I'm in a profession that allows me to do that that and um, but I didn't know anything about this until I went to until I met I guess in, when I met Paul Paul was a was in a PhD program when I met him and uh, where did y'all meet at? at the University of Texas at Austin okay. so I was an undergrad and I was doing I was working at the College of, of uh, Natural Sciences so I so I, I I'd learned that about you know oh how majors worked and I, I it helped me to sort of do some navigation because I understood certain mechanisms by being in that you know I was a first gen student right I was the first person in my family right my parents my sister right I was the first person to go to college uh, and have that experience and understand it in that way and so a lot of every a lot of things were first of learning what that meant to be in that space and so um, I could you know as I've told this story in my, in my writings and in uh, other interviews, when I went to college, my goal, I said, I'd always sort of had this lifelong goal to be a teacher, but when I got accepted to college and was going to go, and I said, I want to be a teacher, you know, then all the black folk were like, no, nah, you can't do that. You're better than that. That's what we used to have to do, but now you can do so much more, right? So I was like, okay, I'll go to business. I'll get a degree in business because that's what black folk did. You got a degree in business, uh, you know, accounting, finance, something like that. You got your MBA if you, right? So I was like, okay, I'll go business. I'll be a lawyer, um, you know, but then I didn't do that. I went in speech pathology because I had this intense interest in language, but I was looking at it from very problematic perspectives, but I started off then speech pathology, then I was going to become a mathematician. Hold on, you going to jump all the way to mathematician. I was going to be a lot of things. <laughs> I changed my major. Uh, then I was going to do math and uh, English. Uh, I did educational psychology. Like I did a lot of things, but I, I landed on this. And it was part of that process when I met Paul, and he was a graduate student. He was like, oh, what's that? What do you guys do? I didn't know what that was. Nobody knows the system when they're in there in it. <laughs> And so just from talking with him, then, you know, when I finally got into what my major was, you know, all of these people are like, you're so brilliant and you're so smart and you have these great ideas. Like, you should go to graduate school. Like, oh, what's that, right? And they're like, you know, I got people took an interest in so me. So the peers around you. Have, these were my to, professors. Help you to peers. tap into you. So your professor saw Yeah, you. I think when I met Paul, I ended up starting working with his advisor in, some, in this research project. And so I understood more about research and working with her. But then at the same time, I was finally settling into my major that became my major. And these, the faculty that I was taking classes with were just blown away. And, you know, I still have contact with, with one of those professors who was like, I always knew you were special. Like, <laughs> you know, but they helped me, um, you know, uh, got me these get me to introduce me to these fellowship programs that I applied for with their help and ended up getting these fellowships which paid for me to go to school I'm one of the few people I guess who graduated debt-free uh, I, I did not have to pay for any schooling I got I got um, my parents that was when college was affordable 
My parents were rich by nobody's means, but the combination of the fellowship, the scholarships I got, working as a part-time, working, not I was a full-time student, but working part-time on campus and my parents, I did not have to pay for anything. Everything, I did not, I shouldn't say, I didn't, I, that's not true, I didn't have, I did pay for stuff, but point was, I was able to do that without going into debt. I took one student loan when I was in college and that loan was to buy a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, my first Apple computer, and I bought that computer and then, you know, paid that off fairly quickly because it was what, like $1,300 or I don't know how much it was, but that was the only debt I ever had. And, uh, and graduate school was fully paid for. So, so I, see, I see why you got motivated because it wasn't costing you anything. It wasn't costing you anything. I'm blessed. I felt my job was that. I was there to do a job. Uh, people were paying me to work. People were paying me to do the thing that I was passionate about, and I wasn't going to let those people down. My parents sacrificed for me to be able to do those things. Like I said, they weren't wealthy, but you know. As you know, scholarships and fellowships don't pay for everything. So my parents were coming out of pocket to pay for things um, with money that, you know, I don't know how they did it. But only that school was more affordable then. But, you know, I, my parents bought me a car. Um, uh, when I was in undergrad, a used car, I had a used car. My dad was like, no, you need a heavy. I, was, I wanted a particular car. He's like, nope, we're going to get you this car. He got me this used car. I hated that car, but that car was the most reliable car I had. The new car he bought me that I wanted, that car broke down so often. Paul, to this day, anytime he sees a Volkswagen, he's just like curses to Volkswagen. Uh, but, you know, my parents bought me that car, bought, you know, bought me another car when I went off to graduate school. Um, that's when I got the new car. They paid my car insurance. Uh, like things were just set up in such a way. I, I, it's kind of like that book uh, by Ma Malcolm Gladwell. What is the name of that book right now? Um, no, it's actually. about the Gladwell book. I can't believe I'm blanking on the name, but the one essentially talks about being born at the right, at right moments. And so like Bill Gates was born at the right moment, for example, he talks about that based upon this period in history and his ability to be able to accomplish the things that he accomplished, right? So there are people who are, you're, there are period of, periods of time that are just right for this next thing to happen for them. Outliers, I think it's called outliers. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. And so I felt, I feel like I went, I was being schooled. I was in, you know, education at a time where for black folks, this was a great time to be there because you could graduate without, you know, debt. That doesn't happen anymore, but um, this is not the best time for most people when it comes to that. But yeah, so I, I just, it was, it was all a blessing that I was able to do those things. It was a blessing that I got a job. My goodness, right? Like today people can't get jobs. Even um, with PhDs. People with PhDs cannot get faculty jobs or sometimes any other job, right? Um, the fact that I was still able to get a tenure track position, you know, now most of the professoriate are not in tenure or tenure track positions. They are adjunct. They're essentially contingent faculty. They do not have long-term contracts. They don't have job stabilization. That's, that's, you know, this is just an erosion of what's happened in higher ed. So the fact that I have not had, I'll tell you even how much more I'm blessed 
So not only, you know, I graduated in five years with got a master's and a PhD, that doesn't tend to happen much these days, uh, but I had good funding and I had parents who sacrificed for me. I got a job, not only did I get a job, my husband got a job with me at the same place. Do you know how rare that is that, that happens? So we got, I didn't, we, not just one, not just two, three. That happened we three got times. a job, yes, University of Georgia, UTSA, and now at the University of Arizona. And when I did my postdoc at Stanford, Paul didn't have a postdoc, I had the postdoc. They paid him. They still paid him his research salary to be able to follow me so all the whole family could go, all three of us, me, Paul, and Isaac could go. I know I'm blessed because most people don't have this story. There's so many people who are academic couples living away from each other or at different institutions or one of them can't find a job. We have, we have found tenured, tenure track jobs at three different places. Three, and some people can't get one, and we've gotten it three times. But so, you know, but you you have the, you have a different kind of attitude. Now that's you know, you know, and I I've, I do believe this where you can have what you say, mm -hmm. and you can have what you what what's good, bad, or indifference, mm -hmm. and you have a way of you know I'm going to get this. We I'm going to get this for both of us. That's faith. Now that's a faith issue too. But, yeah, but, but I mean, yeah. but you, but with that attitude, you. You send out the yeah. energy. You, you, so God have to honor his words, you know, because you believe yeah. it and you, you yeah. received it. So yeah. it just didn't happen. God, I always you, you pray, God, prepare me for the doors that you open. But I know that a lot of those doors are based upon prayers of my ancestors. Uh, I stand on the prayers of my grandmother and my aunts and all these women who have put out prayers and are still putting out prayers. You know, I get a prayer every day from my Auntie Beanie. So I, I, none of this, I didn't do any of this on my own, but I've tried to be, I've tried to be honorable and obedient and grateful. And you resourceful in a way where you reached out to my children and you've been a blessing to the both of them. Because I believe we are blessed to be a blessing. So that, that's, that's early and that's, what, that's the early thing in the Bible. And it's better, one of the things I learned, I still remember this, I was at a church service, it was me, Paul and Isaac, we were in Georgia and we were looking for a church. I should say I was looking at Paul and Isaac, they just, but because he was really young. Um, and we went to this white church and I knew I was like, it was a bunch of old white people. And I was like, yeah, this is not going to be our church. But I was like, we're going to stay through the whole thing. And that is one of the most memorable church, um, sermons, I guess that I was at, because the one thing I remember from that, besides the context that I was in was the verse from James where James, where he said it is better to give than to receive. Mm. I, that is, if there's a scripture, I don't always remember the exact place it comes from, but I do know the scripture, right? It is better to give than receive, right? This was, no, 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 this was, but this was Paul, wasn't it, who was in prison? Or was it James? Anyway, no, they were in prison and they were being, they had been beaten, they had been wrongfully accused or whatever, and they're in there preaching, and he was just like, through all the sufferings that I, I think it is James, through all the sufferings that I've had, It might be in the book of James, but it might be about Paul. It's like, through all the sufferings that I've had, this is the one thing I know. It is better to give than to receive. 
And so I remember that. And I remember God telling Abraham and Abraham coming to this, right? It is, we are blessed because Abraham is the father of Israel, right? We are blessed, created, created from one man, this whole nation, right? We are blessed to be a blessing. We are here to serve others because it is better to give than it is to receive. So I, that is just what I try. So a lot of what I do, you're talking about this academic stuff, but a lot of stuff that I do, those conferences that I was holding, those conferences were all those black people who were doing that work in language and African-American communities. And they weren't always getting the credit that they do. And that work wasn't always getting the exposure that it should have gotten. And so one of the things that I've had so many black people come back to me and say is you gave us a place to talk about work that was important to our community and that no place else gave us that opportunity. Yeah. I have this woman now who's a dean at Stanford who said, I learned from you. I learned that we can do our own thing for our own people and get the word out that we want to get out. I learned how to do these conferences. I learned how to do this stuff that exposes all of our people, right, to this sort of stuff. So for me, it's setting an example to show our capacity for, I guess, grace, our capacity for love, our capacity for all of the knowledge and the intellect that we have that we can share with other people. So most of my work has been behind the scenes work where I've created community among black linguists, where I started off with a community of, I think it was like 20 or 30 people that's now grown to over like 130, 150 people um, in the time that I've been doing this. And I have seen where I could count, right? You know, I literally knew every black linguist because there just weren't a lot of them to now there are students and students and students who are doing this and it just amazes me and i i want to be there for them to help them in any way that i can and that's what i do so you you have exemplified servant leadership Maybe the, that's the, the scripture of bible said let to let him who let him or her who's great among you be your servant yeah Yes, so you it's, are so, a it's, it's so funny that you put it that way, because I still remember when I was at an undergrad at UT Austin, and I was working at the College of Masters. Now, I was, wasn't, no, it wasn't when I was working for them. What I was doing was related. So I started off as this peer advisor. So during the summer, students go to orientation, new students, you know, freshmen go to orientation. So they have current students who serve as advisors to them, and, you know, they might stay in the dorm with them and be the you know dorm person or take them on tours they help them with advising and there's so i was so i was a peer advisor and i look back on it and go yeah that's just so how i am i guess so i had gotten um i was doing it but it somehow was still connected to college of natural sciences because i still remember my my uh, supervisor telling me you know bringing me in to chastise me because i wasn't personally signing up to advise enough students or something like I was letting other people do that and I was like but but I but I'm, I feel like I've always been sort of a conduit like I try to match people with the best person that can help them or is connected to them or is related to them so I would spend a lot of time trying to be and I was have always been collaborative 
and helping other people in sort of, you know, getting them to the place that they need to go to. So I was signing, I was just sort of floating around, helping individual people and stuff, as opposed to necessarily sitting there at the table and going through them with their schedules, get their classes signed up, right? And so I got dinged for that. But when I look on it, when I look back at that, it's like, but this is what I do, right? Still do. This is what I do. This is what brings me joy. What I love doing so that, that's, is... That, so that's why your favorite term, let it do what it do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is definitely... Yes, my Ray Charles moment. Yeah, we're going to make it do what it do. Yeah. <laughs> that's in the book. I, I, I'm positive. I, put, I did put that in that book. We're going to make it do what it do. But yeah. And yeah. That, but that's real. I mean, I yeah. watch in, uh, you over the years and you uh, even with your oh you didn't see me when I was younger so when I was younger I was the person every Christmas like I no I'm talking about teens (laughs) I would um, I would take care of the gift exchange for Christmas make sure the gift exchange happened everybody it wasn't so much having to be in charge as much as I just wanted people I'm all about bringing people together and so I would, I always remembered everybody's birthdays and made sure they had a card and something right and reminding people. Um, that was, you know, that was just, that's what I enjoy doing. You know, then I had my son and then I was just tired all the time. So, <laughs> so that kind of slacked off a little bit. Isaac, but Isaac messed, messed up all yeah. everybody else. There's before Isaac and after Isaac. So Isaac took all the energy after at that point. But yeah. You give yeah. a lot, so I—that is my my thing. I I hope it's so funny when I just get my hair done, and uh, I ask her, "Oh, I forgot which payment method do you use?" And she was like, "Well, if you use Cash App, just give me a couple more dollars because in order to get it immediately, you." Have, I said, "Oh, yeah, I don't know anything about that because nobody ever gives me money, so I just know how to send it. I don't know how to get money." <laughs> But, and you know, and I don't think about it in that way. And it's just like, yeah, that's just, I'm blessed to do that. So like, that's what I'll do. I don't expect people to give me anything. I, I don't, yeah, I just, I just, that is not an expectation that I have. My expectation is, is that I'm blessed. So I'm going to give to somebody and not, I expect somebody to give something to me. Now, you know, I am kind of weird around my birthday. Like, okay, I expect a card, but I don't expect, you're like, you don't have to give me money in a card. You can just call me and say happy birthday, right? Like, I'm, that's just a birthday thing. Or with my son for so, Mother's Day. So that's a pet peeve, though. It's not a pet peeve, <laughs> but it is some me. kind of quirk. It is some kind of quirk oh, I have. Okay, but it's just sort of that acknowledge, oh, it's your birthday, because I see birthday as that's your special day, right? Like, you know, people are saying, oh, I'm so happy that you were born or whatever. But so that's just a weird thing. But like for Christmas or no, I don't, I just, I just, I don't, don't. Well, I'll take that back. For Christmas, I do expect something from Chelsea. Some kind of acknowledgement from Chelsea, Samia, and Kayeen. Okay. The rest of y'all ain't studying about y'all. But those three, I'm yeah. like, those are my babies. So expectations from them. Yes. Card. Say hi. Say, you know, which they're really good about giving me a Starbucks gift card, which gets used immediately. But yes. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, in general, I just don't that's you know that's not the forefront it's not well, not I, the key i thought it was, imp- it was important to bring this up because that's the way i see you that's the way mm-hmm. i've known you oh thank you and i think that's a powerful p- place to be in mm-hmm. and that's 
why you blessed and you're blessing to so many. Break down the word linguistics for us. Oh, that's a good. I don't think there is. Well, from I lingua, I mean from lingua, so that's which Spanish, is tongue. French. Lingua, I no, I think lingua is probably Latin. Yeah, it's Latin. It's Latin because we talk about a lingua franca. So lingua is tongue, you know, tongue when we talk, we used to say language, they speak many tongues, meaning they speak many languages. So lingua. you spell it L-I, right? It's L-I-N-G-U-A when you're talking lingua. Okay. Yeah, so language or So that might just be, when we say Latin, Spanish is a derivative of Latin, I guess. Yes, it's called the Romance language because the they all spoke Latin, so Italians, French, Spanish, well, Spain, France, um, Italy, that but, region, uh, those languages through separation, that's how you got these but, other languages. But they didn't grow, but I'd like to thank you for being on contact. I really thank you for appreciate being a part it. of this. Well, it was a lot of, it was so much went on, uh, and so much happened today. And I just feel honored to have, have you took time of your business schedule to be here with us. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. It was my pleasure. All right. Man can shackle the hand. The man can shackle the feet. But only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time.